Welcome to the second season of Influence Me, a podcast series where I discuss matters of leadership with a wide range of guests. I'm Assistant Commissioner Andrew Short. For me, this podcast series is all about supporting leaders, both experienced and emerging, through the many challenges that will come on their leadership journey. It is my view that leadership is all about influence, and I look forward to interviewing more guests for the purpose of increasing knowledge and understanding of leadership. As the title of this podcast suggests, I want to be influenced. Today's guest is John Corkett. John is an Assistant Commissioner with QFES, as I am, and he currently leads the Fire and Rescue Service team. It's a, uh, the Fire Rescue Service in Queensland is a multidisciplinary team of over a thousand fire service officers, emergency managers and public service officers, and, uh, which, uh, which delivers all hazards prevention, preparedness and emergency response operations for Brisbane City and regional surrounds. John has been a firefighter for over 35 years and has served in metropolitan and regional areas in operational management roles, specialising in emergency response, risk and disaster management. He, over time, has been someone through his interactions, not just within the service, but broader in the urban search and rescue environment, has taken on leadership roles in the state for the nation and even at a international level. Currently, he's represented Australia at numerous United Nations search and rescue meetings and is an international classifier having assessed more than a dozen different countries. In addition, John was the official mentor for the Japan, New Zealand, USA and China international disaster response teams. John is a graduate of the Institute of Company Directors and has a broad range of academic qualifications, a couple of masters, graduate diplomas. John has sat on a number of humanitarian boards and committees and among other awards was proud to receive the Australian Fire Service Medal, the AFSM, in the 2006 Queen's Birthday Honours List. Today, I think, John, it's about trying to have a chat about how you got to where you are now playing a pretty serious role in national level in the USAR environment. And I hope that we do jump in and talk about things that you've seen and you've experienced because it's not just about helping other nations prepare and become classified, but it's also about the experiences you've had operationally. So welcome, John, and I've been chasing you quite a bit to, to do this and you know that and it's just great that we've been able to sit down and have this talk for the listeners benefit. John and I have had careers which have paralleled for many, many years and I've got a recollection of us both standing outside of Balmoral Fire Station back <laughs> in around 19, probably 87, around there somewhere. And it's been great to have John as a colleague and a friend all through those years. So yeah, welcome. John. Thanks, Andrew. Appreciate the offer to, to be here. Um, now, I've got to ask a question. In me asking you to do this and then you having a think about this as a discussion, it would have uh, resulted in you reflecting or starting to reflect on your own journey through that time and probably had you thinking about things you probably hadn't thought about uh, for some time. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah, I think whenever you get asked to do something like this, it, it makes you pause for a short period of time and, and you start to, um, I wouldn't say reminisce, but you start to, to take yourself back to how you arrived at this this particular point in life. And obviously to be asked to do something like this is that you I guess you, you recognise that you've you've done some done some things, so it's good to be here. Yeah, it's such a great opportunity. One of the things that we try to do, or I try to do, in, the, in these discussions with with a variety of people, is to 
probably shine a light on the leadership pathway for, for those who are earlier in their career. And you know, we use terms like emerging leaders or you know, young leaders or what have you. I'm going to now take you back to that very early part in your life where, like me, we joined back then what was a fire brigade. Was it in a state fire service back then? And we both at some stage chose to take on leadership roles. How did that happen for you? How, I mean, I'm sure that at some stage you were happy being a firefighter sitting in the back seat, but all of a sudden you probably realised at some point, hey, I want to do more. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I think it came naturally um, for me, and I, and I think that's the case for a lot of lot of different people, is that you, you're happy at the position that you're doing, but you find that you're... You you're out. You start to outgrow it, or you feel like you could have bigger input, and you could you know you you'd like to have some input into the direction and the decision. So a bit of early advice that was given to me, and I pass it on uh, all the time now, is that always position yourself so that if a door opens, you're in a position to walk through it. It's it's your choice then. It's you to you to walk through, not the organisation saying that you're not you're not ready for it so I took some opportunities to say they came forward and it was just a natural progression for me to continue to take on more roles and you know to try and have a bit more influence at, at, at each level but it's a long it's a long-term journey you know you have a small input and then you get a little bit higher or you get more opportunities and and then you have a bit more input and and you become wiser as you as you get older and and uh, you make better decisions I think I still hear people commonly say, particularly emerging leaders, where you say, well, you know, what are you doing? How are you preparing yourself? What's your next move? And all the rest of it. And, and one of the things I hear from these people is, I'm not ready. And I think your point about the door, you know, being ready when that door opens is pretty relevant in the sense that a lot of the time it's not about choosing. It's things are put in front of you that you weren't expecting and all of a sudden it's an opportunity and you jump in. I think in emergency management, it's, it's a very experiential learning organisation and that and that is that in, until you've been to X number of emergencies or you've been on the floor for years that sort of view that your ideas are not necessarily as, as relevant. I think that the, the issue is that you will always feel, particularly in this industry, that you're never ready to take the next level. In your own mind you never are. Unfortunately what happens is people if they don't act on it and they do have the ability and the knowledge and the insight and, they, and the drive but they choose not to take that path is that they end up becoming bitter and twisted because the, the position or other opportunities pass them by and then they, they, they miss those opportunities. So I'm always encouraging younger people, emerging leaders to take those opportunities even if you don't think that you're quite ready. That's, you know, that's part of the learning process. There's so many levels to this. Even people, when those moments come, there's sometimes there's a fear to step away from their team or from their group or from their cohort, to use that word. And it can be pretty confronting, particularly when they may fear they're letting people down by moving away from the group to take on a leadership role. And that just reminded me, my, one of my things is that I think leadership can be an extremely lonely place to be. Has that been your experience at certain oh, points? Yeah, at certain points it has been. I've been quite lucky. I've always had a, a good cohort of, of other leaders who I've lent on and I've spoken to and, and you're one of them as a friend and, and a colleague. We've sort of had parallel careers and I've never really felt 
lonely. I've always felt that I could reach out. And now that's a benefit of a uniform service, and that is, is that you tend to tend to be in the organisation for a long time and you, and you know quite a lot of people. What I think that is the big step is during emergencies where it's genuinely dangerous and you need to commit people into situations that are legitimately critical but also uh, have the potential for you know a bad outcome that's a lonely place to be and I remember when we were in Padang at the earthquake and we had reports of a, a person trapped underneath the Ambicheng hotel and we had to commit well I had to commit a number of people to, to go in there a couple of volunteers and it was a very unstable building and and I remember thinking to myself you know what happens if this building collapses you know it's so they're, they're lonely and they can be, you know, you can have your heart in your throat sometimes. Yeah, and thank you for, for taking us that direction because the focus today is about leadership during operations. And many of the people I've spoken to, we, we end up going into our theoretical concepts and uh, management theory, leadership theory. And I always believe that, that certainly leadership in the operational context uh, can be even though the, the, the concepts and the principles apply, it's different in the sense that it's real time. An expression I use that leadership during operations is decision making in real time. And certainly it's not always neat, it's not always perfect, and certainly, certainly there's always risk right in our face in terms of the decisions that we take. So just going back to your earlier days as a leader, and, and I will explore further or more the yeah, your USAR period, uh, particularly as a leader. But certainly in that early period for you, you would have seen other leaders back in that era that you either admired or maybe you did, didn't admire so much. Did you find yourself looking at traits of other leaders even early in your time? Oh, 100%. Yeah, yeah absolutely. It's, it's one of the... I've been very lucky and, and I've worked with some very good uh, leaders and very good emergency managers. And I say this... It's quite interesting because I also say I'm lucky in that I've worked with some really bad ones as well. And you learn as much from the bad ones as you do the good ones. And you take away the what you think are the good traits that, that suit you and your personality and you know what you never want to see again because you, you soundly disagree with either their behaviour or their approach and you go, I'm never going to do that. Uh, I'm, I'm a different type of person. And, and look, there was a new era, new, the emerging leaders coming through are going to join a very different organisation to the one I, I joined, and, and no doubt that they will bring a whole range of different intent and, and knowledge and skills and where they see the, the direction of the organisation, But and that's quite natural. But the certain people, particularly some of the, the older, you know, we, we had people who had joined during World War II who were coming to the end of their careers when we joined. I mean. It was such a different ball game, yeah. and I, there were some people that you couldn't respect, and there's some people you respected immensely. Yeah, I've, I've got a, a recollection of an experience where, uh, quite early in my own career, you know, watching a, a senior officer arrive onto a fire ground and proceed to get stuck into any person who was not moving, and it was quite it's something that stayed with me forever. You know, a, a group of people who are operating as a team to try to bring something under control and you inject something into it which is only going to disrupt. 
And certainly for me, it's an example of those moments as you described where you do learn from the back. The theory around that is, you know, technically we learn more from positives as opposed to negatives. But I do believe that, you know, those ones that we've seen and we reject in our own mind as being uh, good leadership, that stays with us forever. I'm glad, and I'm glad that you've raised it. So John, let's jump right into the you know, leadership during operations as distinct from you know, leadership in the corporate world or leadership during non-operational moments. What principles do you keep front of mind when you have to step into that role? Well, I think the most important thing to remember is that it is, as you said, it's very much, it's a different type of management. It's a different type of leadership. You can't administer an emergency. You, you can't. Yeah, I love that expression about you can't you can't stand up a committee. You can't you stand up a, a committee. Decision. No, yeah. to make a yeah. to make a decision. But there's some some key things is that you you must lead because if you don't, the emergency will overtake you. The longer you wait, the fewer options you have. And there was a, a comment that was given to me some time ago, and it was about you you need to maintain authority with input and. That is about still making a decision, still making sure everybody knows who's in charge or what the command and control structure is, but you're looking for input from, from all, of, all the various people. But you don't have the luxury of time, necessarily, and there's a saying that you know, incident management is, is, is probably more of an art than a science. Even though you've got policies and procedures and it tells you that we use certain structures in, in place, it's the application of those that becomes so critical. And that's a difference between, I think, a good commander and, a, and you know, somebody who's you know, perhaps still Okay, learning. so you've covered how you know, decision-making real time, it's not, you know, you don't have the luxury of, of, of a lot of time to be able to arrive at a, at a choice yep. as being a fundamental principle uh, when, when leading in that context. Clearly, you know, mission-focused or being mission-focused keeps us really focused on the outcome that we're trying to achieve. What other things do you, are really important for you? And as an example, I, I would, my observation is that by your nature, you're quite a people-centric operator so even though we're not there to, to keep everyone happy or to make decisions to to actually uh, make people feel good about themselves i have seen you be able to still keep the people element in your mind even when you're in the thick of action so can you speak to that how do you try to be aware of what's happening for the people and how to bring the best out of them as being part of your team I think, and I think we've all heard of it before, it's, it's about situational leadership and it's about understanding that to get a job done you, you have to do it through people. It is a challenge and in a lot of cases it's about understanding the needs and wants of, of the individuals below you. But you've got a job to do and you, you've got an organisational requirement to bring about an incident. In other words, you've got to get in front of the incident. You start always start behind and the, your job as a commander is to get in front of it so you can you know you can bring some sort of sense of order and you can only do that through through in individuals understanding that you've got some core values that you've always got to maintain and, and one of them is about safety and that is is that you know they all your staff underneath you must always know that you've got their safety at at, at the forefront of your mind it doesn't mean it's always safe it doesn't mean that things aren't going to go wrong but you've always got you know their their safety, and of course the other one is is the outcome, and the organisational obligation, and that is to the protection of the the community. So, it is difficult sometimes where you you need to make decisions, particularly if people don't know you. Often judgments are made on just that snippet, 
of you know who John Corkett is or who Andrew Short is by a very short interaction. That's leadership too, and they'll make a judgment on you. So sometimes that can be that can be quite quite challenging. And in this world with social media, something really you know, short in duration become the, can become the focus point. You know, if a camera captures you as a leader or one of your team doing something, regardless of, of the overall management of the of the incident, yep. that little moment can be really captured and presented in a real negative way, depending on the situation. The notion of being cool and calm, what's your take on that? Because I've seen all leaders in respect of that. You know, the ones who you can see that they're they're bristling, that they're not necessarily feeling a high degree of calmness themselves. And my view is that that can really flow out to the team. But the point I'm trying to make here is that is it sometimes that even though your mind might be going a thousand miles per hour, that you keep front of mind is you you got to you got to present a calm demeanour. Yeah, it's it's part of the the leadership requirements during an emergency because things are going wrong. You're, you're fundamentally trying to manage an uncontrolled situation and turning it into a controlled situa- situation. So there's a couple of things. It's very much the old adage of the the duck that looks calm on top of the water, but its the feet are going yeah, a million miles an hour. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's a few things you really do have to understand your own emotional intelligence and the emotional intelligence of the people around you. Tiredness is always a, a you'll find people get angry and judgment starts to drop and they also become less tolerant as they get tired. Now you can undo years of years of really good cooperative agreements and relationships with other agencies and with the local community by one outburst, particularly if you're in a leadership position. And, and you can undo years of really good work in, in, in that place. I think it's very easy to be an armchair critic. I'm, I'm really cautious of that. And going back to social media, if you see one component of one activity and it doesn't look right, doesn't mean that that's the whole story. It's very easy to make a judgment. It rarely is. Yeah, yeah it rarely yeah. is. There's always reasoning behind it and there's always something that's occurred before and after that's created that, that position. So whether it's you know somebody doing something unsafe or not wearing protective clothing or they're doing working outside of procedure or, or policy. Is often a very good reason for that. So I think it's you really have to be, you know, not judgmental in that space. I think one of the things I was just going to say is, particularly when you're younger, the caution is to head off in a direction of trying to bring bring a fire, for instance, under control, and and that's a, a non-rational escalation of commitment, which is a, a really important thing to to keep in the back of your mind. And you've spoken about this a few times, but can, can you explain that now in some detail to the listeners on how that can play bad? So so what it is, is, is you start becoming committed to a, a, a single direction. And an emergency, like any other crisis that you find even outside, you know, outside a fire service or emergency service, any organisation going through a crisis, you head down a path and then you become committed and then even though the warning bells are, are saying go otherwise, you've already committed so much that you don't want to stop and, and change direction. And a, good, and a good example, and you would have been here, and, and certainly I have many times where, for instance, you, you're trying to put a fire break in to stop the fire from getting, you know, from one part of a ridge over to another. You're working hard, it's taking longer than what you think, but, but 
darkness is coming on, you're trying to push them harder because you know that if you don't get it finished, then all of that good work is is going to be undone and the fire's going to go, you know, going to pass over and perhaps impact on a, on a community. So you go harder, but it becomes darker and it becomes more dangerous. And the reality is you probably should stop it and cut your losses and then move, move down, but you don't, you keep pushing in and that's when you end up with potential injuries or, you know, something worse. You've just prompted me about the importance that sometimes you need to walk away. And, yeah. and I'll give an example just to help people understand the, the context. An earlier incident for me was a small fire in a chemical factory or facility. And we were fortunate that we had wind pushing the smoke coming off that fire out the back of the premises, which allowed us to have the control point out the front. Then all of a sudden this thing turned around, so the wind actually turned the other way. And I can imagine that some leaders would have said to their team, hold. Whereas I found myself on that day, and thankfully it was a good decision because we weren't dealing with a life risk, we were dealing with you know, trying to put out this small fire in this place. And, and we, actually, we actually walked away, I actually gave the direction, walked you know, out on the road, other side of the footpath, let's get away from this smoke. Because even though we had many people in BA who were doing the internal work, everyone external, including the property owner, were, you know, were about to get impacted by this plume. And it was interesting in that we did that. We got away, we had a virtually down tools, and then a choice was made. And I realised at that point in time, I need to regroup so that we can actually work out how we're going to get, go back into this. And as it turned out, I you know, put my hand up and said, control point is right here now. You know, SO's come in, we're going to have a talk about what we're going to do now. And it worked out okay. But I can see that other people who would have been so committed to what they're trying to achieve would have, would have lost sight that something has changed around them. And before you mentioned the term situational awareness, where they haven't, you know, haven't been responsive to that. It's so easy to get, it's like moths to a flame uh, sort of mentality, which is something that can, that can happen for us. Now, John, just, just moving on now into your uh, USAR history. I, I, yeah, sure. I, I just wanted to, to yep. say is that that decision that you made, you would have been criticised by that by a, mem- by a number of your crew, particularly some of the older ones who, who would have gone. Some of the smoke eaters. Some of the smoke eaters, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and yeah you, so yeah. you would have been mm. criticised, but that comes back to these, these values of, of, you know, that you've got their safety. But the honesty and competency, so you, you were honest with them. The reason why I, why I moved it was for these reasons. And the fact that you, you're competent, you're competent in what you're doing. So that, you know, the three traits that I think leadership right across the board is honesty, competency and forward, forward looking. Yeah, and, they're great points. And, and, and it's important. And you made that decision knowing though that some of these, and you would have been younger than them, they were going to be critical and talk behind your back about you know, you know, why did we have to move? You know, it's a bit, only a bit of smoke or whatever else. So yeah, it's you know their leadership, their leadership are, decisions. It's a, probably a good message for those mm. who are listening, particularly younger leaders, that if you haven't worked out yet, if you're in a leadership role, that uh, you're not in charge of happiness, mm. which is something that some early you know, young leaders, and I probably made the mistake myself. You, you think you are, whereas in fact you're in charge of uh, resolving a situation. Uh, keeping people safe, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. and that if you can get satisfied uh, teams or operators as a result of the action, that's great. But that's not the objective uh, to, to to make people happy. And, and I do hope that people really um, take that on board. That once you once you become a leader, you are going to be saying no to people. You're going to be disagreeing with people and not giving them an answer that they want to hear. Mm-hmm. But the earlier you accept that. 
the easier it gets for us as leaders. Is that something you would... Yeah, you and, and, and totally have you, had, have you had experiences? And I know I'm putting you on the, putting oh, you on the spot the, here. Without naming names or anything, uh, where, where, oh, you, where you've, you know... Well, I think it naturally comes with the... With the um, you know, with with the role, uh, you you very frequently are not you know making people happy. I, I think I think one of the main the main things is that, and one of the learnings probably that I wish I'd known when I was a little bit younger is that you're actually only part of a much bigger picture. Yeah, you don't have an all the all the answers, and and you realise that you're you're often looking at a problem from a really narrow perspective. That's you know your problem and you know, you might ask for additional resources and you not get them. So it's very easy to be critical on those who, you know, who are in the commanders at regional yeah. level who yeah. say, no, sorry, you can't have them. But you're only part of, a, a, if you like, an organisation that has so many functioning parts and so many inputs and so many people and it's an organism in its own right that it's almost selfish to think that my problem is, is bigger than a, a, anyone else's. So... I think that you really do need to understand that you are your needs are not the only ones that are impacting on on people higher than you. And I think as a fiery, you know, and the officer asked you to do something, and it was, you know, you weren't, you know, you're grizzling about it. But, yeah, but, but yeah. the bottom line is, is that there's always a bigger reason. I've got this recollection that maybe back in those earlier times, uh, people were more accepting of, mm. of you know you do the job you've been asked to do i wonder whether you know the your more recent generations are more likely to challenge those moments and that i think brings challenges for our current leaders mm. in that some of them are not used to that of people openly uh challenge them and i think going back to your point about emotional intelligence yep. i think you've got to use that um, set of skills to try to resolve those moments. I don't, I don't think there's any silver is, bullet here. Is that when you, you know, you and I working in the office, a very different leader, a very different manager to what we are on, on during, during in the field <clears throat> in an emergency <clears throat> situation. Yeah. It's people who can't move from one of that, you know, can't reconcile that there is a difference between one and the other that that struggle you try and be autocratic with the new generation coming through without giving reasons and without listening to their <laughs> needs and views and you're not going to be very successful you're not going to you're not going to have your people behind you stand, you get the passive, agri- a passive, passive um, resistance yeah. uh, starting to happen yeah 100 just any comments you want to make about your and, and i do want to kind of jump into you sir at least mm. a little bit mm. in terms of what you've seen you've had the luck not luxury you, you've had the benefit of seeing leaders from many different countries Mm. and probably uh, good and bad, like, like every nation has. What's some of the consistent or the, the regular things that you've seen in good leaders at that very uh, national or international USAR level? So you're exactly right. The, the way people command and, and lead is, is very situational and it's also very contextual with every single country is, you know, it's a completely different community. Different culture overlay too. Very, yeah, very yeah. strong cultural overlay. The, the Asian overlay of, of their culture, and that's very generic, you know, versus the European, you know, versus West versus North, East. American, or, yeah, you know, yeah. it's, it's always different. But the, the things that always come to, to fruition, and, and you see them at the top end, no matter what culture in is that, and, and we're getting back down to the ability to communicate. 
that communicate your values, be able to talk to different people, understand the emotional intelligence of you and, and your staff. They're really common, common themes. That people will follow a leader you know, through thick and thin if they believe that the leader's got their you know, got got their um, got their back, or got their back, um, and, and is committed to looking yeah, after them. Yeah, it's yeah. it's it's a it's really is a the the common thread, and again, I come back to honesty, competency, and forward forward looking. They're, they're the three traits that I see right across the board. I'm not talking about even mid level leaders, but these are your top leaders. Yeah, you, you're often your you know your generals and your director generals and your um, you know key people who don't need, even though they have formal authority well and truly because often indicated by a lot of brass oh, and colour and, and yeah, rank and yeah, artefacts and everything. They don't need that. They don't no, need that. Yeah, it's yeah. that top end don't need anything. They could be in t-shirts and shorts and, and they'll still be they'll still be a, a good leader. And, and I'm sure you could you could you know, name some people but you in you speaking about this there, there's a, a re, it's actually he's passed away now but there was a um, a chief officer over in California by the name of Bill Clayton, who was an example of one of those people, though, although he carried formal rank, he was, and the, funny enough, the word that was used for him was fire god. Mm, because mm, mm. these people, they, they step onto a fire ground mm. and they could be wearing a t-shirt. Mm. They, they don't because they come with, P, you know, they come with their PPE as they, as they should, but, but that's the following they have. And to see the calmness that comes across the team when, when these senior people arrive because they're seen as being someone who's going to value add, someone who's going to help you know, bring this thing to a safe conclusion. It's really powerful, these moments. The word is, I guess, respect. And, and somebody like him, and I am familiar of his, his career, and um, they, they have respect, and it's not just an immediate thing. It's built in over, over, over years and many, decades. many years. Yeah, yeah. And, and it becomes a topic of discussion, and it's passed on to people who have never even met these these individuals. So, yeah, that, that level of respect is, is really important. And again, coming back to him, he knows what he's talking about when he comes onto a, a, a fire ground. So he is not just somebody who's talking from a, you know, from a... Um, a theory perspective he's sort of been there and done that and you know it's a it's it's a different type of quality that we're we're looking at just mm. further to that mm. one of the things that I saw because I, I, I was fortunate to be able to, to spend time with him mm. I actually got to a couple of jobs as mm. an observer mm. um, being a guest of that fire service and Bill was a great observer mm. in that you could see him looking mm. at things mm. and assessing in his own mind. So mm. it, he wasn't that, uh, people think that sometimes leaders have got to be the one who, who, who comes on, who arrives and starts telling everyone to do or whatever. But mm. Bill was an incredible observer and he would hold off making a statement or responding until he was ready in his own mind to value add. And it was really powerful. It was mm. really, really powerful. And maybe because I'm, an, I'm a, I love observing people and mm. love observing mm. leaders of how they go how how they go about their business and that's that's something that that has stayed with me that it's actually okay even during an emergency to take that you know, there's a word pregnant a term pregnant pause or to, um, take a moment before you rush off in any one direction and I think the more senior experienced leaders are able to do that or they, or they look like they've got more time on their hands yeah I mean it's the it's the ability to to operate at that higher level. There's there's an old saying, sort of, how, how many decisions do you want to make during an emergency? Do you want to make ten? Do you want to make a hundred, five hundred, a thousand, ten thousand? 
because there's so many decisions have to be made and, and as a single person it is impossible for them to have a handle on every single moving piece during you know a major factory fire or a petrochemical fire or, or a mass casualty incident there are literally thousands of decisions going on so it's about as a commander about removing yourself from what you don't need to having trust in your people and operating at that high level and by taking that as you say that pause to take in and to assess what's going on that's a that that is a powerful thing so you're saying that control freaks and micromanagers aren't going to do too well well, they will at a tactical level, but but <laughs> but as you move up into into a leadership role, it's going to be the the worst thing that you can do because they'll be simply overwhelmed very quickly, and you'll you'll make bad decisions, and you can't be there twenty four hours a day, especially with a campaign type fire that goes for days and days and days. Yeah, it's an impossible sort of situation. It is. Okay, now just bringing uh, bring us now to uh, near the end. Every every guest I have, as I've spoken about, uh, I've, I've got five standard questions, and I'll just run through those now. And it's about what comes to your mind. I'm not looking for long answers. It, it might be a simple answer, and that's okay. So the first question is, and this and you know, these couple of these questions at least are quite personal, and I appreciate that. Yeah, it might be interesting for you in, in answering it, but the first question is, what do you wish you really understood? Well, I, th I think I covered that a little bit in, in that I wish I'd understood that my problem wasn't the only problem in the whole world, that I was part of always a much bigger, a, a bigger organisation. I think that's really important for leaders to understand that they're not going to get the answer that they want from their necessarily every time from their person who sits sits above them, and they need to understand that there's good reasons there's good reasons um, behind that. So many parts, many players. Uh, it's it's a you know the world is is very complex. Organisations are very complex. Decisions are very uh, complex. So I, th I think I just yeah I think you can be very inward looking when you when you're a little bit younger. Yeah, it's and, an easy it's certainly it's an easy yeah. trap to fall into. Yep. The second question is, what do you wish that other people understood about you? I think reality and perceptions are, are often two different two different issues, and I think that. I'd like people to understand the, the five minutes that they might interact with me for a particular reason, either you know at work or you know, on the incident ground, is not necessarily the whole person. It's I think you mentioned it before with social media that snippet that, that couple of minutes moment, on one moment on the time. news yeah. that one moment in time yeah. that one decision is not the whole whole package, and I try and keep that in my mind too. When if I have had a bad interaction, very short but kind of sour interaction with an individual, I'll try and think to myself, you know, is that the whole person or is it just that moment, that just that moment in time? That's a, that's a great answer, John. Mm. The third question, and, and you've touched on this a little bit in, in clearly reflecting on, on your earlier uh, period and transition into leadership. Mm. In respect to your own leadership development and knowing what you know now, what advice would you give to the younger version of yourself? I was given some advice a long time ago, which is have trust in the process. Understand you're not the complete font of knowledge. And, and I put myself down in our context as being quite knowledgeable. But I'm still, but none of us, you or I or, or the commissioner, we're not the font of all knowledge. So 
you're in a committee or a working group or, or you've got an incident management team together and everybody say, says go right and you're thinking go left, have the confidence that, that those people, are, you know, they're smart people as well. They wouldn't be in that room unless they were. So have trust that maybe, maybe you're wrong in this situation yeah. and, you, and you need to, to follow it. And I try and put that across whether it's our executive leadership team or whether it's a, you know, it is an incident management team that have trust in the process, bring people together and that you've got to genuinely, genuinely listen to them. The other, the other one I'd, I'd just say, and, and again, another piece of good advice is that I, I can't understand and I've got very little sort of tolerance for people who say, I, I don't like the politics of the organisation. I don't like the politics of leadership and, and the word poly comes from Latin, which means good order. And everybody has got a level of politics, whether you're at the local football club or the local RSL or the swimming club, there is internal politics. So anybody who says, oh, I, I don't want to go further because I can't stand the politics, well, it's, it's not a good enough excuse. Politics is good order. It is what how the government, how society functions. Yeah. And um, that is part of the, that's part of the deal. There's a book titled From Buddy to Boss, mm. and the author, and, I, and I'm sorry, but I can't recall the author's name, mm. he acknowledges that in every organisation, every group of people, every situation where you have collaboration of people, mm. of which leadership is part of, mm. there's always politics. And if you don't accept that, then you probably shouldn't get into the game at all. Yep. Yep. Um, so I've, yeah, that's a, a great example you used, John. Mm -hmm. The next, or well, the fourth, fourth and uh, second last question: If you had a magic wand, what's an ability you would give current leaders in the sector right now, and the sector in the broadest sense? Well, I, th I think the single words judgment. I think that is uh, the single. Some people call it common sense. It's 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 about judgment and the ability to take into account your environment, all the different inputs, the pro, balance the pros, the cons, and make a respectful decision, you know, based on, on good judgment. Yeah. Now that's really difficult to, to teach people. How, um, how do you put a, how do you put a, what's the term about um, um, an old head on young shoulders? It's it's, it's, a, it's a level yeah. of wiseness, yeah. and, and that's not an age-based thing. It, yeah. it, some people it's have got time. really good judgment, yeah. and that's a, it's a, something that we, constantly need to keep working on. It's very easy to become emotive, particularly when you're an emerging leader over a particular issue. And you know, right now there's a whole range of, of issues that we're talking about. There's pressures, whether it's financial or, you know, what what does the organization look like in, in the future with regards to, you know, diversity and gender balance operationally and workplace health and safety and and we've got all of these competing issues and priorities and obligations to the community and legislative requirements it's very easy to become passionate about a single single point and once you become over passionate on your single point you start to lose your judgment about what is the greater good for the organization and the com community and probably uh, by extension you end up losing situational awareness of the very true of the yeah, know, yeah of the role that you're in and how it's contributed to that higher order or, or bigger issue yeah, yeah you start become blind and, and we've had people on various um, uh, you know we've been involved with with introduction of you know new communications or whatever who become so vested they have such a you know it's that non-rational escalation of commitment they're so 
they're so invested in a particular direction that they become not just lose their value, but they actually become a hindrance to, to moving forward. So, mm. Thank you. The, the fifth and final question is, what's the legacy you wish to be remembered for as a leader and possibly as a, as a human being in your life? It, it, I thought about this question because it, it's almost a self-indulgent question to a certain, yeah, to a certain extent. Is, but we, is but a, we all want to leave something behind after we yeah, go. Yeah, yeah, we do. And I, look, I, I think particularly at this point, you know, 37 years, I, I really clear that there's a finite period of time that you have working in, in, this, in this industry. So I, I think there's two parts from a personal perspective. It's simply, you know, that I was a good man and I, I did my very best. I, th I think that's a fundamental one that probably most of us feel like we should. From an organisation perspective, I'm comfortable what I leave behind, I won't necessarily be remembered for. So I think sometimes the most valuable legacy you can leave is, is not those single big items. But I've had the luxury of touching, you know, policies, procedures, equipment, community throughout my whole life. And it might be the next generation that are operating in this environment from procedures that I had an input into or equipment that I had input. They'll, they won't know who I am. Yeah. But I think that's my legacy is that I'll leave behind a whole lot of little things, but they won't actually know where they originated that, from. That's a, a very good take mm. on mm. that question. Mm. Indeed, mm. Uh, most people tend mm. to associate, like to associate something or some things, but the fact that you're saying that you, know, you want to leave your contribution, yeah. but not necessarily be remembered for it all, I think says a lot about you, John. So mm. that's great. So that's the five questions. That's the end. Thank you for your service, John. And, and just to acknowledge, not just service within our core organisation, but you, know, you by choice mm. have ventured into urban search and rescue at both a national mm. and international level and I know because I've got to meet some of them there are many people out there in other countries who appreciate the value that you have brought to USAR as uh, one of the core things of the, the United Nations mm. and it's incredibly important and I, I've certainly acknowledged that you've made a difference so just to wrap up any final comment or thoughts to an emerging leader who's sitting out there listening to this what would you say to them about something that they need to keep in mind? My message would be is if, if there's an emerging leader out there who's thinking about having their career in emergency services, and that's a very broad service. It could be mines rescue, it could be firefighting, it could be law enforcement, there's a whole range of things. It's an incredibly, you won't get rich from it, but it's an incredibly satisfying career, and you have opportunities to do things that no amount of money can buy. Yeah. And uh, that satisfaction that comes from helping people, and helping the community, and, and doing your bit to make the family safer is a very satisfying and important part of, I guess, a functioning community. For me, uh, an example, and I don't want to extend uh, our podcast too much longer, but that family that we leave at their house where we've been able to come along. And it could be anything from a flood situation, could be anything, a fire situation, it could be a range of things where mm. you've left things better for them than what was occurring before you arrived. I think it's a very simple thought, but for me, by extension, you go, yeah, as the incident gets bigger, and in Queensland here, we've had some incredibly big flood events where families and communities have been helped by local leaders, by leadership teams, yep. by people who want to make a difference. 
And I think to your point, you're right, you're not going to become a millionaire, but you're going to be incredibly rich with experiences. You, you, um, it's not about uh, remuneration, and often it's not even about direction. It's, it's about during those emergencies uh, playing your part. And it's the old saying, remember that you're part of probably the worst day of somebody's life. Yeah. You may not remember, it might be a normal day in the office to a certain extent, but the person who you interacted with is, it's probably potentially one of the worst days of their lives. So, And by your action, you've helped mm. make it better. So, That's right. John, thank you again. And I just appreciate that you gave me some of your time. I've been chasing you to do this for some time, you know that. But we did it. And I value the fact you've given me some of your time and I hope you have a good day. Thanks, Andrew. Appreciate it.